paranormal, UFOs, monsters, mysteries. You're listening to Talking Weird. And now, from a cabin deep in the Northwoods, your hosts, Dr. Dean Bertram and Jen Durrell. Greetings to all my fellow weirdos and weirdettes. Welcome to Talking Weird on the Untold Radio Network. I'm your host, Dean Bertram, and we have a heck of a show for you tonight, as I hope we have every weekend, every Saturday night for you guys. If you don't like the channel, the Untold Radio channel on YouTube, please go and click that like and subscribe button and subscribe to the Untold Radio Network on all of your podcast platforms. The gentleman I've got back tonight, um, we had him on probably about five months ago. He's an incredibly talented filmmaker, but I, I suppose I'll read you his more official introduction now. He's a Seattle-based director, actually, and he's known for his multi-award-winning animated short film, Fred Chrisman, Cave of the Space Nazis, which is inspired by the brilliant writings of Richard Shaver and Raymond Palmer, who everybody who watches or listens to the show regularly knows I spend an awful lot of time thinking about these days. Also, that film, I, of course, screened at the film festival that I run in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, called Midwest Weird Fest, where it actually won Best Animated Film, and that's how I first met Brian. He also has an upcoming Christmas documentary featuring interviews with family members, professors, and conspiracy theorists alike, as well as a follow-up to the animated epic featuring a slew of guest stars. So I'm just delighted to welcome back to Talking Weird the immensely talented Brian Shickley. Hey, man. Man, it's good to have you back. This is day three of that. It is. We've just for the audience who don't know, we can fill them in. I guess for the last, this is at our third night of Brian and I either interview, well, interviewing each other. I interviewed him for the man who invented flying saucers because he's quite the expert on Fred Chrisman and shaverology in general. And then he was kind enough to interview me last night for his upcoming documentary on Fred Chrisman. And tonight, I guess we're talking about your the newest chapter of the Christmas animation story, as well as your documentary, as well as AI technology, as well as the Maury <laughs> Island incident, as well as the Shaver mystery, as well as whatever takes our fancy. I came here to talk about recipes that your kids will enjoy. What, the, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I we talk about synchronicities, right? Uh-huh. I, I'm going to say it's no coincidence that since I got back on this show, there's now a big thing that says the guests' opinions are not not those of Untold Radio. It might be because of your outrageous claims last time, Brian. My <laughs> suspicion. I don't know if that's really true or not. I'm just being facetious. But thank you to everybody in the chat who's joining us as well. Please come and ask Brian any questions. He's a powerhouse of knowledge and of all things, like I said, Shaver, and particularly Fred Chrisman. Do you want to just quickly, before we get into the just the, the fun, crazy stuff, do you want to fill people in who might know who Fred Chrisman is? Just a little bit about him. Um, Ken Thomas said it best when he said, CIA, UFO, JFK. And there's one common denominator between all those things. It's a man from either Tacoma, Washington, or you could say Vail, Oregon. But he 
was a man that just suddenly started appearing in every major conspiracy, starting with the Shaver mystery. He would submit little uh, little snippets to uh, the magazine, and then he moved up to Fate, and he was involved in, if not one of the first UFO sightings, and actual physical contact. And then after that, you think he's done, and Jim Garrison calls him in, and there's newspaper clippings where he's now getting talked to in regards to the JFK assassination. Well, of course, there's a suggestion that for those who are au fait with conspiracy law, there's a photo of three tramps taken at Dealey Plaza or near Dealey Plaza on the day of Kennedy's assassination. Well, they're called the three trams. And conspiracy theorists over the years have suggested these people, one might be Howard Hunt and one might be somebody else, but a popular interpretation, perhaps the most popular interpretation, is that one of those shooters was Fred Chrisman. Or one of those tramps was Fred Chrisman, and then to extrapolate, then one of the shooters was Fred Chrisman. Oh, I should tell you, I uh, for the script for number three, I, I've worked... I've spent two years since the first one thinking of what the conspiracy actually is if we're doing a, a show. And oh, the answer, <laughs> the answer is all of them. And I have a little piece of uh, Pat Cashman going, every man, woman, and child <laughs> was at Dealey Plaza and they were all armed and dangerous. <laughs> and I have proof. I was and, the only one who didn't do it. And Pat Cashman is the actor who does the voice for Fred Christman for those who don't know mm -hmm. your animation. Should we show the trailer for the next edition of Fred Christman? Would you like me to Please. throw that up? Okay. Please do. It's fantastic. Let's let's bang that up right now. In fact, I've got a trailer for the first one. Or do you just want to show the the latest one? I've got uh, both. Why don't you do the first one and then we'll do the okay. second one a little later? Sounds good. I am meeting with a man who is by no stretch of the imagination, shy about his claims. My name is Fred Chrisman. I'm a real person. The Eros Masquerade Supreme. I'm in the business of collecting and archiving amazing stories. I think he's dead. Oh my god! Do you know what minerals the cave was composed of? 20% limestone and 80% space Nazi monsters! There is no I in team, but there is always a man in Chrisman. <laughs> Fantastic. Can people watch that first one now? It's been released, yep, I think, right? It's officially out. You can finally watch it. I sat on it for a year and a half. Well, you were doing the Fest Circuit in fairness. Like, that's when we played you at Midwest Weird Fest. What, yeah, what's the, what website do they go to to see that? You can just go on YouTube. It's called Fred Chrisman Cave of the Space Nazis. You can type in Cave of the Space Nazis. I wanted a title that would that would grab you. I know you would know what the Shaver mystery was, but like... It's hard to do an elevator pitch. It's true. And we've, we've both been talking about in the interviews, that which, which we mentioned, that much of the history of the Shaver mystery and much of the early days of UFO research and the influence of people like Palmer and Chrisman and Shaver has been all but forgotten. Did you want to chat a little bit about that? There's a really good podcast called Monster Talk, and it's hosted by a bunch of guys from Skeptic Magazine. And they brought up that 
the Daros are an extension of the uh, the Morlocks and the Eloys from H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And Palmer had this amazing ability to latch on to a piece of culture and wrap, wrap what he's doing inside it. So, for instance, we know that Lemuria was speculated speculated in the 1800s, you know, that where do lemurs come from where they can be in the, I believe, what is it, Africa, India? They, they said there's mm-hmm. a continent in between. That's the only way that there could be lemurs on both areas. And then, um, so they just used, you know, insert title here, Lemuria, Lemuria. And suddenly, you know, continental drift got discovered. But then suddenly after that, people started saying, well, I have memories of past lives in Lemuria. Just like Atlantis, it somehow magically transformed. Palmer took that and said, you know, Shaver, I remember Lemuria. He turned that into sort of a mix of maybe fact and speculation. And with that, we sort of spawned into these further and further rabbit holes where there's always been some version of an underground monster that's controlling our minds or abducts people it's it's the some of those shaver mysteries are really sexually charged they're very vicious and upsetting and they um some of that's going away now in modern history but there's always the aliens that'll you know if you've seen dark skies or close encounters when you open the door and there's the bright light and there's a figure standing there there's always aliens out to abduct you and they always seem to end up in military underground bases for some reason. So yeah, it's all, cer- yeah, yeah. No, it certainly loops back to Shaver, the idea that these things are subterranean. And as you said too, as other people have pointed out, there's of course the Time Machine by H.G. Wells and the Morlocks who live underground. There's A. Merritt's work, books like The Moon Pool, which Shaver was clearly influenced by, uh, Bulwer Lytton's work on the coming race. And of course, all through, back through history, we can go back to biblical ideas of Gehenna or, or or Sheol, or we can go to Greek ideas about Hades or any idea about the underworld. It always tends to place these non-human and sometimes dead human beings beneath our feet. Fairy faith is another classic example in that, the idea that the fairies live in hills or below the ground. So yeah, you're right. I think there is that continuity into the Shaver mystery. There's also so many religions that have a concept of an afterlife that's either above ground or underground, which, and we, you know, dragons, dragons are always such a weird one to me that there's been a couple cultures that have, what if a lizard was giant or maybe it's something I like to think of it evolutionarily nine times out of 10, I'm trying to think with skeptic mind. And I always think, I think we'd just be afraid of really big lizards and really big spiders. And we incorporate that stuff into these these uh, mythologies and we all kind of share those basic fears. So no matter what I think of it as we're all connected in some way. Yeah. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm always suspicious of some of the traditional scientific explanations about the age of the earth and the development of humankind, not to perhaps the level of a shaver type of conspiracy theory, but I wonder if there wasn't, a time where there was coexistence between us and essentially dragons or, you know, the dinosaurs really, you know, whatever was left over. And there are just, there's cultural memories of, you know, one that was living in this swamp here and we had to kill that one. And there was some over here that were killing our sheep and we had to deal with those. And that transformed into the dragon mythology. 
but you're right. I, I'm certainly conscious that there's evolutionary ideas as well that maybe somehow little mammals that remember being chased by big lizards. And so that got imprinted onto the DNA, but who knows? It's fascinating though to think about. And it is fascinating that it's cross-cultural that this talk of subterranean creatures like the Darrow, as well as things like dragons exist on almost every continent and almost every culture on the planet. We haven't done Darrow's riding dragons yet. That's we'll save that for Christmas number four. That would be fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. I think one of the amazing stories, funnily enough that, um, during the Shaver period, it's not a Shaver cover story, but I think there's a Shaver story in it. Has like spacemen looking, people riding dragon pterosaur type of things. Oh, that's so cool. A lot of this imagery was being pushed out, you know, in amazing, really, which is which is fantastic. So, how did you find out about Chrisman originally? I mean, he's he's such an interesting character, but again, he's not somebody that that many people are aware of. I don't remember if we covered this, but it was. Uh... I saw the Moore Island incident. It goes back further. I went to a high school called Big Picture. That's two days out of the week. You got an internship. So I actually. I've been drawing professionally since I was 14. And I'm not saying I was the best. I'm saying I started so early. And people were dumb enough to pay me at the time. But I met Scott Schaefer, who, if you know his pedigree, he was a field director on Penn and Tully's bullshit. He did. uh Gosh, what else did he do? He did Bill Nye the Science Guy, Almost Live, you know, which spun off into Bill Nye. And then I think he did, like, the Joan Rivers show. He did He did some of those... He spent a couple of years in L.A. doing some of those those shows where you swap the star in and out and see if you can make a show out of it. And he he went through a slew of guest stars, and he, he I think they were writing nightly. I mean, it's an amazing grind. Anyway, he... He went back to Seattle to do Bill Nye, and then after that, he started a blog. He has the he has a whole myriad of them now, like the B-Town blog, the Waterland blog, and they cover all these different tiny sub-communities of the Puget Sound area, specifically. And so, in high school, they are like, oh, go talk to this guy. And he, he came by the school, and he was telling me about, uh, he was telling me all about working with Penn & Teller and how he's never met them, but all the, all the fun people you got to field direct and how to get good interviews out of people. So I would sit in his office, just doodling twice a week, usually on weekends too. I really like spending time with him. And he went on to make the Maury Island movie and every idea I contributed to it. I got, you know, they crumpled it up, not because they were bad, but because this is a union movie, which is very important. Um, we have very limited funds, which is even more important, and we only have so much time. And part of the pitch was that Harold Dahl had seen these ships. They can afford the the sky ships, but um, he had this guy who he reported to, Fred Chrisman. So he said, just look up Fred Chrisman. He's involved with JFK stuff. And I looked it up and it said he fought subterranean humanoid dwellers that had laser rifles and I'm like, okay, is this, is this an evil dead movie? Cause I could, I could immediately picture them shooting at him and him grabbing the rifle and, you know, <laughs> shooting the Daros. So let's talk a little bit about Maury Island. That's what we built this episode about Fred Christman and Maury Island, because you just mentioned you worked on the Maury Island film for those of people, for those people who mightn't be 
totally familiar with what happened at Maury Island. Can you give us a kind of an overview of synopsis of that incident? This is the third time we've talked about this exact incident. <laughs> I know, in three days. <laughs> Hang on, I'm not checking Wikipedia right now. June 21st, 1947. That's the day I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Harold Dahl was out on a little tiny fisher boat, a little tuggish boat, and they were fishing for logs. So this was a side hustle they did, kind of in their mid to late 20s, where they were on the Puget Sound pulling up driftwood that they were logs that lumber companies would move on barges, they would fall off, and then they would gather them and sell them back to the companies at a at a profit. So one day after uh, a nice log gathering event, Dahl notices something appearing from the clouds. First, he sees one ship, and he said it was shaped like a donut, specifically like a donut, big hole in the middle, and these portholes that go all the way around. And then he sees another and another, and suddenly one starts shaking and rumbling, and the dog starts looking up. They had this dog on the boat. Uh, history dictates his name is Sparky. I can't confirm that. And they look up, Fire just shoots out of the thing. And uh, Dahl's boy, who I believe was 15 at the time, Charles Dahl, he looks up, fire shooting down, just pieces of molten debris. They said they saw steam hitting the water as it was coming, you know, as the pieces were coming down. Dahl immediately runs for his camera, which is very important, UFO people. Even if you think you can't, the first guy who saw one of these things got the camera. So no excuses. If I see one, I'll get a camera too. And Dahl took all these photos of the craft. And then he, he heard a scream and he looked over and Charles arm was just singed. And immediately they take the boat. They literally run it ashore. They, they pretty much destroy the boat and they run to the beach and they start hiding as this, 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 they called it slag. This kind of chaff material was hitting the beach. And, um, before that hits the dog Sparky, they look at all this chaos, the ships go away and they're now left with a brutally injured kid and a dead dog. And they now have to report this back to Dahl's best friend and maybe his boss, Fred Christman. And he tosses the dog, ties him into a burlap sack, tosses him to see they don't want to see the dog ever again. I mean, who would be reminded of that? And they go back to tell Christman and Christman says something along the lines of, are you out of your mind? Which is where my first hesitance comes up. Dahl tells a couple of people, a man dressed in an all black suit visits him the next day and says, let's go to the bar. I want to talk over breakfast. And so Harold Dahl sits down across from him. There's a man with a cigarette in his mouth and he's saying, so you saw six discs in the air and he starts recounting it. There were six discs. Your son's arm got brutally injured. I know somewhere you have a camera and I know somewhere you have pictures. Don't show the pictures to anyone. Do not tell anyone what you saw. Do not tell anyone about the dog if you want your health to continue the way it is. And, of course, now we would recognize that as a man in black sighting. If it was, I'm not sure. But some some goon told Dahl, don't talk about this. Um, do you want me to keep going into the Arnold stuff? Oh, absolutely. 
Okay, so Crispin goes the next day. He walks down. He sees that there's just some sort of rock-like, metal-like debris all over the beach. And he actually looks up. He brought a camera, too. And he sees something. He thinks there's circle-ish shape in the clouds. He takes a picture of that. He starts collecting the debris. And then he looks into a tree and realizes seared inside the bark of the tree as if it like was welded. Just just from the heat. He pulls this piece out and realizes Dahl didn't just put this in the tree. He's not just lying to me. So they take the debris. He puts it in a box. He had already been talking to Raymond Palmer of Amazing Stories at this time. Now Amazing Stories was starting to spawn into Fate Magazine which was going from more science fiction type stuff into real life, well, real life encounters. It's UFOs. And Kenneth Arnold was a man who had seen him previously. So now we have to go back to Kenneth Arnold, who was flying just after this. He was flying over Mount Rainier looking for a, I believe it was a down to B-25. I could be mistaken on the plane. But he sees a formation... I think of nine crescent-shaped UFOs. I've also heard they were a couple of other shapes, but the main one was a crescent-shaped UFO. He tries calling out to other people. No one's seeing what he's seeing. No one's near him. And when he lands, he, he tells anyone who will listen. And there are many people who are pilots that had also seen this, but they thought it was uh, uncouth to talk about it. He immediately starts going to the press and newspapers are asking him, and I'm talking dozens and dozens of people are asking, what did you see in the sky? And he gets kind of frustrated. You know, he was saying it was kind of flowing like this. And he's like, it's like when you skip a rock on the water and they're like a, a rock. What, what are you talking? He's like, I just, okay. Like if you threw a saucer, like if, if you saw a flying saucer and one of the reporters, and I've seen this happen, this happened with DB Cooper too, where they, where they mixed it up because they were just writing in shorthand. Suddenly, People started seeing flying saucers because that's what the journalist wrote. And Palmer talks to him and says, Mr. Arnold, I met this man, Fred Chrisman. Um, he's in Tacoma, Washington. I want you to go fly out on your plane and go see him. I'm giving you 200 bucks for the day and well, for the whole trip. And he Arnold lands at Tacoma. He gets over to look for a hotel. There's there's not a single one he can find except at the Winthrop, where the bellhop says, not the bellhop, the receptionist says, hey, look, there's a, that's weird, there's already a Kenneth Arnold uh, who's supposed to be here. And I imagine in his mind, he said, this must be science fiction. Palmer never pays for anything. How could, how could this have happened? And he meets up with Chrisman and Dahl, and they kind of sketch him out a little bit. They show him the boat. He's not entirely convinced. When asked, they say, Oh, you know, we're using this debris as an ashtray, but take a take a look at this. And they show him, and he's not particularly swayed by it, but he calls uh, Lieutenant Smith and Lieutenant Brown, who are about to start the very first, uh, I believe they just called it Air Force Day, right? It's when the U.S. Army Air Forces secedes from the Army, becomes an independent branch. So these two are going to celebrate the first day of the Air Force. And they put the debris on there, and they put it in a box, they label it top secret, and they seal it, and then they fly off. The very next day, Chrisman shows up, 
And Chrisman says, look at this. And he's got a newspaper clipping that shows the plane had exploded in midair. The two men who received the debris died. Um, I believe, was it, I believe there were two pilots who got out. I think they were the two pilots. They I think the, the, I think the other two bailed and they didn't bail and they, and the, they, the other two airmen who were with yeah. them who bailed said, we thought they'd bail as well, but they didn't. That's bizarre. Okay. I like yeah. that. That adds to the, to the lore of it. And there's stuff I'm leaving out. There's, they think the, the hotel room, room 502 at the Winthrop is bugged. Um, they're getting phone calls from reporters kind of claiming where they are and what they're doing to the point that it seems like someone's watching them through the window. It, it would make a great, if they do a Maury sequel, it would make a great, uh, psychodrama, just a, just a thriller. And ultimately Chrisman and Dahl are, uh, yeah, it crashes over Kelso. Thank you. Uh, chat crashes in Kelso and ultimately, all right, we're talking to that person in the chat later. Um, Ultimately, they, uh, Chrisman and Dahl are sort of implicated as the people who caused the first major death in the Air Force. And Chrisman and Dahl are basically interrogated now. I mean, they're, they're in deep trouble. And Dahl says, and this is how the More Island guys tell it to me, uh, Scott and Steve. They say, Dahl claimed, if I'm ever asked again, I will say I am the biggest liar who ever lived. Now... Very specifically, he does not admit it. They actually have a t-shirt campaign. If you go to Buren, you'll see a lot of shirts that say Dahl did not admit because they claim that Dahl, to his dying day, stuck with the story. And it gets into weirder territory. Uh, there's been interviews with Dahl's son. I've met some of the Dahl family. I've met some of the Chrisman family. And they all have very mixed feelings, which I'm sure if Grandpa was involved in something like this, you would you would kind of... That's a story for us to enjoy. That's not a story for the family to enjoy. And Chrisman famously said afterwards, he said, if I was the man who caused all these deaths and I was not to be trusted by my country, then why did they ask me to serve again in Korea? I think that's the long and short of it. I'm sure I missed yeah. 20 things. No, I mean, of course, it's such a complicated story, but you did a fantastic overview. I know there's a theory. I, it might it might appear in Ken Thomas's book on on the Fred Chrisman uh, Maury Island incident, Fred Christman conspiracy or whatever it's called. It's a great book. I might've read it there, but I think people have suggested that Christman might've been called in, which makes him even more mysterious to cover up a Boeing test flight, which had gone haywire and had crashed or something. Have you heard that story or? I've heard that. And I've heard that their Boeing may have been dumping toxic waste mm -hmm. into more Island. More Island is weird. Too. Um, it's a rich person area now. We we went there for the for the documentary, obviously, and we went to both beaches and looked around. And my favorite part is it's like the most hip hipster dudes with their shirts off going jogging, wearing sandals, just chilling, probably high, you know, super chill Washington area where rich people uh, you know, take their dogs and it's very nice. But um I had a point. It was a very smart point. Oh, there were barrels. There's toxic waste barrels or some kind of barrels scattered just around the area. It was a dumping site for a long time. That's what I was going to. Dwayne was asking, was there a search for the plane and the crash site at the debris? And he says he actually knows the answer. He'd just like you to explain it for anybody who doesn't. Oh. I've heard it two ways. I've heard one that it was cleaned up overnight. 
And the other one I've heard from Ken Thomas is that there was never anyone investigating. But I know for a fact, Scott and Steve went to the crash site and they, uh, I believe they recreated it for UFO hunters or ancient aliens. They were on both as the, you know, showing off the movie. And what's interesting about that is, uh, I was trying to find the location doing my own stuff. Cause they're not in contact with whoever helped them get there. I ended up just watching the UFO hunters and there's an archeologist who goes there and he's like, this is the land. This is where it is. It's up global Creek. If you're looking, it's up global Creek. Um, now global Creek's like 20 miles. It's, it's, it's a long way. And my friend and I drove out there and to preface this, I wrote to the guy, I took screenshots of the Google map. Like, I think it's here. Is it here? And he said, you got it exactly right. The guy, there's a guy you did not see on this. That was, that was there when we were filming and boom, just bullets whiz past our heads. And he said, the guy was playing target practice. He was messing with us. Um, maybe not the landowner, but the guy adjacent to the land. Right. And he claims to have a lot of the debris, this guy. He 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 wants to keep the site kind of away from, I think, away from a lot of media scrutiny. I, th- I think it adds to the legend even. But he said that, he said, I'm going to stop target practicing if you guys interview me. They interviewed the gentleman. And uh, they said they never used it. And then he said uh, to me, I just need to warn you. He could be dead. Or he could be deadlier. Good luck. And then never replied to anything else I've ever written to him. Wow. You know, there's something strange about the crashes because Kenneth Arnold, when he has his sighting of the nine different shaped crafts, as you said, I think one was Chevron or Crescent shaped and the other ones were like a heel or maybe a tadpole, like a shoe heel with a thing out the back of it. So he he was looking for a C-64 that had gone down because there was a reward for that. And then supposedly, according to Chrisman and Dale, three days before Arnold's sighting, they'd seen this flying device have trouble in the air and, you know, spew out metallic waste. Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter that, when the two investigating Air Force officers are flying away from the Maury Island investigation, as you mentioned, they crash in the B-24 or whatever they're flying. So there's this kind of weird couple-week period in this part of the world where things are just dropping out of the sky as the, the summer of the saucers, I believe I, I read somewhere it goes like there was one sighting, Kenneth Arnold, and there was two a day. Then there was 10 a day. Then there was up to like 120 in a single day. And then it went all the way back down to 10. And ever since then, there's about five to 10 saucer sightings, at least every day from somebody. It's but the weirdest thing. The summer of the saucers, it was this big bell curve of sightings. And we, we talk about this in the documentary, but I think it is worth, I don't know if it's worth keeping for the documentary, so we should share it. But I, I sort of think the way that some people believe that if we all believe in God, we're the ones who keep God alive and make God exist. I do sort of think because they weren't saucer shaped when, when this all started, he, he said it was crescent shaped. I think we can will things into existence or there's mass hysteria or, but, but there's something connected in people that we can all start seeing the same thing. And that's somewhere between frightening and beautiful. And I really appreciate that from the human race. Yeah, I was just, I was actually just pulling up 
um, I'm looking at a, trying to find a quote I wrote my dissertation back in the day, just because it would have been easier to re- read than to rephrase. But I'm certainly not the first person who suggested it anyway. And I know you even talked about it when we were interviewing the other night too. So it's obviously on your mind and in your documentary. But the fact that Arnold doesn't describe anything that even vaguely resembles a saucer, a crescent-shaped or delta wing or chevron-shaped craft, tadpole or shoe heel type things. And it's just because of the way he describes the movement, as you mentioned, like either stones or saucers skip when you throw them across water, which I do all the time when I go to the lake with my daughter. It's one of the things we love to do is do that skipping thing with a flat pebble. But because headline writers shortened it, to flying saucers, and sometimes they'd even shorten that again to flying discs because they were always conscious of we need as you know that we only got so much room to describe this. So at first it was flying saucers, and even more canny headline writers went, well, we'll change it to flying discs because we save a couple more spaces. But then so the initial sighting, which got all of this attention, had nothing to do with saucer or disc-shaped crafts. But then after that, in the summer of the saucers like you're talking about, there was an overwhelming description of craft that were disc or saucer shaped while the headline writers had initiated this very idea so it does seem like something is going on which is more sophisticated than is just seeing nuts and bolts flying saucers it seems like either people are seeing the same thing arnold saw and then just imagining it as as saucer like because it's a uh, what they're used to what they're expecting now or whether people are just part of some broader, I don't know, sociological craze. And so they're all seeing saucers in the sky. But it's very difficult to talk about flying saucers without going back and breaking down the actual development of that phrase, which had nothing to do with the initial sighting. So something very strange happened psychologically or sociologically or maybe paraphysically. Maybe whatever it is started presenting itself to us the way we expected. But it's more complicated to me, or at least that implies it's more complicated than perfect saucer-shaped crafts that were visiting us from the day of Kenneth Arnold onwards, because that's clearly not what happened. I like not knowing. I've been thinking about this. There's a Brian Cranston quote from some, I think he did like an Oxbury Union or some kind of Oxford Union he did, uh, where, where he wanted to remember a band and uh, his kid was like, let me just Google that. And he's like, can I just enjoy not knowing something for a minute? And you respect that more than I do, because I remember when Google happened and I was like, whoa, this is the future. I'll never have to think for myself again. And boy, that could be. Don't put that in an ancient aliens episode. That sounds like I'm crazy. <laughs> um, but my mom loved X-Files. My late mom loved X-Files. And as a kid, I remember the one where they go. This is weird. They go to Mattawa, Washington to go find the Hanford site where they're keeping something. Mattawa is where um, a family member was from. And it's a giant desert. They get it wrong completely. It's a giant desert where no one speaks very much English, where in the show, it's like a, a hippie commune in the woods. Like, hey, man, that's not what it is. It's a very small town. But they get there, and they're going to go see, and they actually see that little chair. And they're, oh, we're going to see the alien. We're going to see the alien. And they get there, and, you know, the smoking man goes, you just missed him. That's way cooler to me than when the show came back and you see an alien's handprint in, like, the UFO in like the very first scene, you're like, oh, I don't want to see the alien. I don't I like not knowing what's going on. Because if we had all the answers, Fred Chrisman wouldn't be interesting anymore. Especially, he, even if he did it. If Chrisman 
was the man who killed Kennedy. And there, Michael Reconosciuto, a guy who worked with him, claims that he has a book that says all this. If it's like, and then I went over here, and Mr. Kennedy, do, 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 do. And then I, you know, I was behind the grassy knoll, and I pulled the trigger. If any of that was real, it would be like, well, there's that now. And then, where's the fun? I think you're right. I I prefer science fiction versions of UFO reality that are more ambiguous. For example, the Jose Chung's from Outer Space episode of the X-Files, where there's that Air Force pilot dressed as an alien abducting people, and then they (laughs) might be abducted by a real alien, and then he has the conversation with Mulder at the bar or the diner or wherever they are and says, I can't assure you that even you're real, you know, I can't assure you that I'm real. I don't, you know, it's so messed up now. We have no sense of where we stand. And I think that's a better reflection of the UFO mystery than your standard meta-narrative tale in the X-Files where they have this type of conspiracy and these deals with the aliens and there's this secret group trying to take over the world. When it becomes so literalized, to me it becomes less interesting. Close Encounters is the same. Close Encounters up until that revelation at the end where the craft land and the little men come out and Neary goes and joins the star children in the sky, up until that point, that's a perfect UFO movie. There's all this high strangeness and Lacombe, who's kind of the valet character, really saying this is a sociological phenomenon, whatever else it is. It really captured that kind of new ufology that Keel wrote about in the 70s. But when you get that very expected ending, it kind of, it's still a fantastic movie. It's probably still the best, you know, alien movie ever made, but that ending destroys the mystery of it. It's, it's, that balance that I think any writer or any creator who writes in this genre has to to think about. In fact, Todorov was the literary critic who formulated it. It, it was the uncanny and it was the fantastic and it was the marvelous. And when you didn't know, when you were in this place in between, it was the fantastic. Like It's like Scooby-Doo. Before the kids pull the mask off the monster, they're in this kind of fantastic realm. Maybe there is a monster. When they pull it off, it's just the uncanny. Well, it was weird, but we've explained it. If they didn't pull the mask off, if they tried and it was really an alien, then it becomes the marvelous. Then it becomes something else. So if you can keep the story within the fantastic, within people not knowing, because we don't know in this world, then I think it rings so much truer. So I think you're right. I think it's better sometimes that we don't suppose we actually know the answers to these mysteries because many of them we don't. That's true. And I got to say that that's one thing I get wrong with the Fred Christman, the first movie I do. Yeah. There's no ambiguity to it is if you read Christman's story, it is literally, I went into a cave, saw a humanoid figure. I have no idea what it is. Um, something shot my friend. He, it, it went clean through, but it was cauterized from the heat of whatever this, this thing was. And, um, he said he saw a craft that was just floating still in the air and, and just things that defy expectation. My version of it, which is funnier, which is, and then I went in there and there were space aliens and they tried to shoot me and it was worse too. In the, in the original draft, they were like trying to, he found a katana and he's like, he's like sword battling with the lasers and you could just go infinitely goofy. The second one is about the man in black, the second Christmas story. And my version of the man in black, if you watch the more Island, Innoc- <laughs> more the more Island innocence and in the more Island movie, he's a spooky guy and I've actually gone and edited it. So he's a lot more in shadow. Like there's something a lot more scary about when you can't see the facial features of this guy. 
And so that's what my man in black is. And he has history that Crispin knows about, but it takes him the whole episode to get there. And, um, should I play the, the whole, trailer for that? Oh, I would love for you to play the trailer. Okay. Here we go. Let's watch this and then we'll come back and talk about it. I'd like you to meet an old acquaintance of mine. He also saw some sort of UFO. Please, a Christman disc is the preferred name by most. Anyone could have planted this all over the ground. What about in the trees? Fred Christman is quite the con man. Christman has a law degree from Oregon State on his wall. And they don't even have a law school. I'm sorry about your dog, Mr. Dow. This man you saw, a man in black. We've been watching you, Fred. These aren't the kind of men you can defy. You just nod your head and pray they don't come back. We know your trail. Sometimes we follow it. Sometimes we carve it. I want you in the know before he drags down your good name along with his. Harold, I know who this man is. And he's not supposed to be alive. Man, I get chills watching that. I'm even more excited about that than I was about the Darrow in the caves one. I like that a lot better. I'm excited too. And it's only because I haven't finished it. We're <laughs> we going to have it for Midwest Weird Fest next year. Will it be ready by March? Oh, by March? Maybe, maybe, maybe. Cause, uh, I got one more, I got one more interview with, uh, Adam go rightly. And then I think we're done filming the rest of that documentary. So all the time to go to Christmas too. Fantastic. Maybe we'll have the documentary by March as well. Then you're going to finish your doco before I finish the man who, who invented I cut flying saucers. Already, I cut half of the first the 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 Darrow stuff. And, wow. Uh, the problem is deleting because it's hard to make it interesting to somebody who doesn't know who Shaver is. The the Harlan Ellison story is like one of my favorite things in the world, and some of that schizophrenia of you know Palmer saying. Well, other people heard the exact voices too. So how could it be synthesized in his own mind? And you're like, oh, well, you know, Shay, you know, Palmer's daughter Linda told the story about when they were both living near each other in Lanark, Amherst, same same thing. When they would regularly visit the Shavers, and the Shavers would visit the Palmers, that Shaver was napping on the couch. I think it was like after Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or some Sunday dinner or something, and Shaver just laid down on the Palmer couch and passed out, was napping. And then she walked past him and the same type of voices that Ray Palmer had heard all those years ago in Pennsylvania when he first met Richard Shaver and he heard Richard Shaver's, he heard voices coming from Shaver's room, which were like four or five different voices, many of them outside of what you would think the range of a, an adult male would be able to make. It's supposedly kind of talking, you know, almost simultaneously or against each other. So Palmer was always like something really weird happened there. But Linda had the same experience with Richard Shaver. And although they liked Richard Shaver, I think the kids, the Palmer kids, I think after that, Linda was a little, you know, well, I'm a little scared to go too near him. So strange I story. I don't think I'd want to hang out with them after that. 
It's Which funny. Isn't cool, but yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Ray Ray B. Palmer, Raymond A. Palmer's son, who still lives in the area, and I've been lucky enough to talk to a little bit, just a little bit, um, has very fond memories of Richard Shaver. He has very fond memories of rock hunting for Richard Shaver, and Richard Shaver showing him, you know, the ancient rock fogo art, which is hidden in rocks in the rock books, and pointing out, see those faces there? And so Shaver was. I think there's this idea that Shaver, some people think he was crazy or he was dangerous or whatever else because he had voices and he spent time in mental hospitals. But I'm assuming that Ray Palmer, who knew him very well, must have felt safe enough to let him wander around the fields of Lanark pulling out rocks and looking for the books together. You know, so You'd never I, be bored. No, not with imagine living in either of those households, in, in Palmer's household or Shaver's household, and they'd always have weekend or Sunday night dinners together and do holidays together. Can you imagine the conversations between Palmer and Shaver? Do you think, do you think there were ever days where he's like, ah, the Daros again, huh? Can't, can't you channel someone else? Well, you know, some, I, I thought that Shaver's engagement with the Darrow had disappeared towards the end of his life. I, I thought it kind of faded off a bit when he got into rock books and all of his energy went there, but I only recently read the book that Timothy Green Beckley published, which Tim Schwartz, one of the co-hosts of the Paracast, along with Gene Steinberg. I just did the Paracast last week. People should go and check out the Paracast and listen to that because those guys- it's wonderful. Well, thank you. Gene Steinberg knew both Palmer and Shaver personally. He'd spent, he'd been to Amherst when Palmer was still alive and he'd been to Summit, Arkansas, where Shaver moved to. And Tim Schwartz had edited the last probably Shaver book ever published of Shaver's own writings. But in that book that that Tim Schwartz edited, I think it's like Richard Shaver and the reality of the inner earth or something. Just look for Tim Schwartz, Richard Shaver. If you want to buy it, you'll be able to find it. But he, in that book, Shaver writes a story about when he was in Summit, Arkansas. So this was in the last, you know, 10-ish years of his life. He was abducted by the Darrow again there because they wanted one of his rock books. And I had no idea until I read that because I'd read all the amazing story stuff and I'd read all of the hidden world stuff. And, you know, I was cognizant that he'd had these experiences, but I always thought they kind of petered out. But no, he was still encountering these things up until his, towards his final days. So, yeah, it never would have been a dull moment. The Darrow took me again last night, honey. He'd say to his wife, I'm assuming. Tie a string to yourself and like bring some family with you. Um, Oh, we said we were going to talk about AI. I did that Darrow drawing using AI um, where talk, I, talk about that. Do you want me to download it and then I can put it up while you're talking yeah, about if you it? Want, yeah. Um, you talk about it while I pull it down and I can put it up well, for everybody to see. We talk about in the documentary, how hard it is to paint these, uh, these wonderful, amazing stories covers. In fact, they did the covers before they did some of the stories. They would just be like, I think it was these green goblin looking dudes or those Daros. Maybe, I don't know. Sometimes they didn't even correlate to what was on in you know in the pages but but there were these wonderful paintings that they were churning out they look like heavy metal covers now or like we kind of lost those i think kids books and stuff like that now it's it's always very comic bookish or it's actual photo shoots that they you know um i remember growing up with goosebumps and i think that was the very in a series of unfortunate events that was kind of the last of the almost photo reel stuff and I was I was learning ways to synthesize it using um, AI tech. So uh, one of them's like, what's the one everyone's using? Dolly. Uh, the one I was using is called, I think, Dreamlike. But yeah, look at that. Except for the fact that it looks like John Lovitz a little bit. 
<laughs> I'm really, I'm really into how you can. I synthesized a spooky looking bald guy. And then I just, I just took my digital paint tools and I actually painted over that to make it look like the, my version of the Daros. But I think we're going to use these for some of those. Uh, well, I, I can see the Brian Shickley Daros style there. Like I know you, you initiated some of the shape of the guy, but in fairness, you went in with your own creative skills because that Darrow looks like your Darrow in your Fred Christman cartoons, right? Kind of facially. Yeah. Well, that shape looks great. Um, I didn't realize, and it was very late edition, but I think when the first line and I remember Lemuria has to do with, uh, the Daros being like a red bearded man, like with a, with a demon beard almost. And that's why the Daros kind of have that pointy chin, but it's, it's weird there. I'm never a hundred percent what the Darrow are actually supposed to look like. Well, I, th I think the, I could be wrong. I mean, I know a little bit about the whole thing now, but. My understanding is that not every Darrow looked like the Elephant Man. Although I know that I'm not the Elephant Man, meaning John Merrick, I mean a man with a kind of long nose. Although that's certainly been the popular interpretation of Darrow for a long time. And I think that comes from an illustration, maybe multiple illustrations, but certainly one illustration, which I believe is in the All Shaver Mystery, the June 1947 issue, because it's this, it was on the newsstands when Kenneth Arnold saw his saw the discs for the first time or are, are those the the ones that kind of look like they're they're like roman gods almost like yeah the the one that later was used for hidden world issue one when ray palmer reintroduced the shaver mystery in his hidden world series of book come magazines which are fantastic anyone who's got a serious interest should, sitting, should hunt those things kind of sitting like this yeah, and they put it on the cover, and in that he's painted red. So it's quite a famous image of Adero. But that illustration, I think, is pulled initially from the June 47 issue of Amazing Stories. But I've certainly seen other pictures of Adero. We were talking about it the other night. Like, I remember Lemuria. I believe the creature in the in the kind of fishbowl prison cage tank and the woman's pulling yeah. the lever in front of him. It's a very famous image from the first shaver issue yeah he looks more like a goblin than that elephant man and i've seen other pictures of darrow illustrations where they might look hideous but they don't all have those elephantine trunks trunks or elephantine noses i think some of them probably did i, I certainly know shaver described them as having loose hanging flesh and being deformed and he described them in ways that can't be repeated on a family program as well but it, it's actually you're right that some of the stuff's quite lurid in the shaver mystery there's a uh... I think I kind of got into the Daryl right after uh, I watched The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. And there's a great, great movie that came out recently, Color Out of Space, which is a Nick Cage movie based on the, the Lovecraft story. And um, it's got so much horrible things fused together. And um, one of the things I like is that the Daryl is in fiction. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in fiction is that... Uh, Gosh, they they could melt people down and then reconstruct them and do this and that. And there's a thing I don't know if it's ever going to make it into a Chrisman project, but Chrisman talks later about going to the the Karakaram, which is uh, the K two mountains and up to the very top of the the peak. And there's another cave where where the bigger Daros are. And I I came up with this creature where the Daros are trying to force a hybrid child. That's the big arc of the the comic I wrote and they need this, this hybrid human creature. And there's a character there. That's a person 
that has like gross darrowness welded to him so he's got a big worm-like body and he's shooting out like a hive of little tiny little tiny fully grown darrows creatures that come out and they start running around all wickedly and they're all deformed and scary and uh it's it's one of the grossest things but it's like i gave my i made my toes curl you know that feeling and i was like oh i hope i can do that to just an audience well what i've noticed recently when we're talking about the darrow to bring it up to date for people who mightn't have ever read amazing might have ever read anything about the shaver mystery is when Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver introduced this idea back in the mid forties and then kind of stuck with the idea of UFOs being potentially having a Shaver-esque kind of explanation coming from the inner earth or coming from the caverns. It wasn't an idea that was ever taken seriously by serious ufologists, whatever the devil that means. Like people like Donald Kehoe didn't take that idea seriously back in the 1950s or through the history of UFO belief. Anybody who was serious, a J. Allen Hynek or, you know, flash forward even later, people like Kevin Randall or Don Schmidt. I'm just trying to think of biggish author Stanton Friedman. None of these people were suggesting that sources came from the caverns or were somehow existent on earth somewhere. But that idea seems to be coming repopularized a little bit. I saw an article the other day, which I shared on Facebook for anybody who's a Facebook friend. But the headline of that was something along the lines of, um, you know, Roswell beings were really from the inner earth or something, which is totally along the lines of the Shaver or Palmer explanation. Hal Putoff, who was attached to, to the Stars Academy and has a long history of being involved in esoterica and UFO belief and the like, wrote a paper, I think, last year called The Ultra-Terrestrial Hypothesis. And John Keel used the term ultra-terrestrial. I think Keel used it more as a literary device, as he himself said, meaning something that was here but was maybe – he meant it more metaphysically than like just like extraterrestrials, but they live here. But certainly Putoff's interpretation of the term, because in fairness he redefines it, is something living here, perhaps beneath the ocean, perhaps beneath the earth. Macta- the late Mactonis fantastic book which came out i think in the late like maybe 2010 somewhere around then i think certainly after i did my dissertation called the crypto terrestrial suggests a similar hypothesis that the aliens are here maybe in the hollow earth maybe somewhere else so uh, you see it again and again in a, re- a documentary we played at midwest weird festival when at the same time we played your christmas movie which was a documentary from mufon tv directed by ron james interviewed a number of fairly significant people in the ufo community and towards the end of that documentary the revelation kind of is well maybe these things aren't from outer space maybe they're from here and so it seems that the old shaver thing that got debunked and laughed at and seemed just haha silly by all the ufologists who wanted to be more scientifically respectable it seems to me a little bit like that idea is coming back into not not popular not popular flavor in the people who are just watching the X-Files or Project Blue Book or watching CNN or Fox or Tucker Carlson or whatever, telling them about these UAPs being photographed by Navy pilots. Those people mightn't be thinking yet that they're ultra terrestrials who live under the ground, but certainly in ufology, in, in respectable-ish areas of ufology, MUFON, for example, nobody would have thought of MUFON positing this is a serious theory 20 years ago. But it's interesting that it almost seems like Shaver and Palmer are becoming vindicated a little bit in the field. I hope there's life after death so they can sit there and go, huh, isn't that interesting? Um, 
can I read any of Murder of a City? Because I want to announce to people. Oh, yeah, please tell them about, I should have asked you already because I only found out last night you were doing this. So yeah, let's, let's tell them what it is first and then read them a passage from it. Okay, so doing a Christmas animation, I felt was a service to him as a is a cultural icon but it was a it was a disservice to him as a man because i'm i you don't want to misconstrue the truth that much and um for all the lies he might have told or the half truths or exaggerations i think um there's a form of disrespect in taking it that far forward his son certainly thinks it's funny but you know i i think if i'm gonna put that guy out into culture again and kind of weigh him against people it we should we should know the real stuff he did and one of those things that i was interested in was uh murder of a city which was his book and i've heard it described in so many ways all the things it's about so we got a man who he was he started a secret organization a secret underground club with his students in high school what does that mean he was accused of being involved in some way either a handler or a gunman during the Kenny, the Kenny assassinated, you know, they kill Kenny every time. And then he, you know, and the more Island incident and, and the shaver stuff. And it's like, what is this book about? And it's him going, I don't like this guy. And there's something so funny about that. He, he talks about the Kennedy stuff, but only in the way that like, and then they flew me all the way out there and it was huge pain in the ass, you know, and the book is you you understand who the guy is just reading the book and i i copied it one time i it was a bad time in my life i chewed my fingernails down to the nub and i took a scan of each page and then i some crispin guy wanted to read it and you know i got it from the tacoma library it was it was a big drive for me um it's not that far it's at the university of washington but the library was closed at the time and you know due to covid and I finally get a hold of this book and I'm taking picture after picture after picture and I'm, I'm going to go use OCR, which you may know what that stands for. It's text recognition. Right. And, um, it, the pages are so warped from all these years. It's like, whoop, whoop, whoop. so words just come scrambled in the wrong order or maybe the Daros mind needled it. I don't know. But, but so when I met his son, he let me, uh, hold on to murder of a city for the night that I stayed in, um, stayed in Oregon. And, uh, he was sick at the time. He suddenly, and out of the kindness of his heart, he let me interview him still. And he did a great job. I could tell he was really pissed off with me. And that kind of added to the, to the feeling. Cause he broke down a little bit, you know, talking about some of this. He, he has a very complex relationship with his dad. His dad died at 55. It's, I could just talk about Christmas all day. Anyway, so I MacGyvered it. I took a, if you ever go to a hotel, you know, there's that thing that says warning, do not remove from wall. And it's got the emergency exits. I, I took out, uh, because I work and stack and stuff. thought I had one. Took out a box cutter and I unscrewed the, the thing. And it's that, that plastic sheet, right? And then I flatten each page of the book out individually. And I took a picture and for, it took about five days in total, but it was five days of sitting, you know? So, wow. so months really, wow. I copied the whole book out paragraph for paragraph. And I'm sure there's errors in it. And I kept every error that he wrote because it was never spell checked. 
And I was very conscious about keeping the indents where they go and the dashes where they go and the quotations where they go. And, um, it's a really interesting book and has nothing to do with Daros has nothing to do with uh, JFK for the most part. And it, he does not mention Maury Island once. It's just all political stuff. Let's and were his, were his politics conservative? That's my vague understanding, but I don't know anywhere near as much about Chrisman as you do. There's an interview with his son where he says, uh, Chrisman made the, the John Birch society look like a bunch of hippies. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there is a gentleman that he's upset with in the book. Uh, I'm trying to remember what his, uh, let's see. Let me read this. With the proper buildup, I could have exploited his flunk out from the University of Washington. I could have exploited his manner of speech and dress as being the silly attempt of a middle-aged man to appear as a hip teenager. There were several areas of this type that could have been used. I did not use them as I sincerely felt that when the count was in, the people of the city would have rejected his false picture of youth and his continuous twisting statements that revealed he learned little or nothing of the workings of city government. He's good at run-on sentences. He sounds like he's talking about like Johnny Depp or something. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh man, let's see. There's a. Oh man. Um. This is just a, a quote that made it into one of the cartoons that I wrote. And it's, it's from a friend who picked out a random page, but it's, I took the view that when you fight with rats, you must use those tactics that only rats understand. I still hold on to that view, and I know very well of these rat tactics. And I really like rat tactics. <laughs> rat tactics. Um, um, I met a gentleman who worked for the Tacoma Better Business Bureau. The circumstances under which I first came into contact with him were not of the most pleasant type, and I am certain that he recalls those days as well. And I do... And under, he understands my dislike of him and his bureau and the manner in which it is operated. But let me make it clear that my first meeting with Walt came when I was investigating him, not the other way around, as Walt likes to tell the story today. I am sure I have the original report. It's buried in the state files. And in fact, I'm quite sure that I can lay my hands on it on short notice. And it's like, wow, that's, that's not even... You can put that in there. I mean, you don't have to drag a PDF. There's a police wow. record, one of the mysterious things about Christmas, you know, and you can find this on this police record on archive.org for however long that's going to be up. But it says, uh, driving under the influence, pulled gun on officer. And then it says under penalty, it says hundred dollar fine. And you're like, try doing that today. I don't care where you are, or who you come, you know, who you are, where you come from. Nobody, nobody would want to do that. Not a single person and a hundred dollar fine. Um, that's in the book yeah. and they have the, the record. And my favorite part is the passive aggression because they said, Mr. Christman, put your hands on the hood or whatever they, you know, and the police version of it says, we don't know who Mr. Christman even is or that he had a radio show. And it's like this little, just they're throwing rocks at each other from their tree houses. All this mattered so much to him back in the day. And so little of this stayed with the history. It's the Maury Island stuff that took off. Yeah. Well, that's why I need to read that book. You asked me about it when you were interviewing me last night, and I had to be honest, I knew about the book, but I've never read it. And you asked me another question about what do I think of Chrisman 
as the man, like as the actual human being. And I'm like, I, I have no idea because my only understanding of Chrisman is this almost mythical figure in conspiracy law who was allegedly fighting Darrow in the caves, allegedly was at that core of the Maury Island. Well, he was, not even allegedly. He was at the heart of the Maury Island incident, whether it was real or a hoax or a cover-up or whatever it was. Chrisman was front and center of that. And then later to be subpoenaed by Garrison in the trial of Clay Shaw or whoever the devil it was in New Orleans regarding the assassination of JFK. And then conspiracy theorists come out and say, yeah, he's he's one of the the three tramps. He's one of the people who shot Kennedy. Like, so there, to have that, to be that involved in three of the most significant ufological and conspiratorial stories of the latter 20th century, you just become this mythical figure of conspiracy law. So yeah, I know nothing about the man except what you've told me. So I need to read that book so I have a better understanding. He's a complex dude. It's, there's, and last time, you know, I interviewed his son after we did our first show together. And, um, that was a weird time. Cause I went to Oregon and I pulled my car over to get some gas and a dude knocked on my window and I was like, Oh my God, Oregon's full of homeless people. And he's like, no, do you want gas? And I'm like, Oh yeah, we're in Oregon. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. He goes, yeah, we're in, we're in Oregon. I'm like, Oh yeah. In Oregon, they pump your gas for you. Huh. And now I, I feel like a, a hobo. I feel like a commoner now that I have to go out to in the cold. So they um, still, they st- I haven't had my gas pumped. I think. As a child, I remember it being done in Sydney when my parents would pull up somewhere. But I don't think it's an, I don't know if it's an adult if I've ever had anybody come out. Maybe once when I drove across America somewhere, somebody did it. But it's such a weird experience. You're like it's not something that's regular. So they they still do that in Oregon. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought that wow. was one of those things they they let go by the wayside. But it's still a. Uh, and I, I don't want to say there's high end and low end gas stations like hotels, but I I don't know. Just that was my experience because I. I had enough money to stop for gas once. That's how I knew. <laughs> oh, there we go. Car's almost dead. Anyway, he told me, he said, I saw some of your, uh, your, uh, talking weird show and you laugh a lot at my dad and I don't mind that, but you need to remember something. And he actually, this is in the documentary. He pulls out a big Ziploc, like one of those giant and ting, 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 ting. He slowly starts laying these out and it's an entire coffee table of, of war medals. Wow. And he's like, never forget that for all the weird stuff, I blame a lot of it on the death of his daughter. I blame a lot of it on uh, the coming to Korea after surviving World War II and just barely. Um, And, you know, just remember that he was a hell of a pilot. And I, he had, I think he had a few hundred kills on his record. And, you know, I was like, you know, I've, of all the stuff I've read, I've never heard him talk about killing anyone or brag about it. And he goes, my dad never ever once took pride in taking the life of someone else. And that's one of those things I could tell he meant it, you know, in his heart and it, it, it pushes away some of that JFK stuff. It's interesting, but speaking about JFK again, speaking about this incredible history of Christmas as a war hero. Can you remember the X-Files episode? reminiscences of a cigarette smoking man and it traced cancer man's like all the things he'd been involved in like he'd shot jfk and he'd done all this I've other stuff and, i've seen so few and everyone you've listed so far i've seen yeah rem- and that's like that's almost like chrisman it's almost like chrisman was almost the smoking man there's a lot of conjecture that he was based on it um 
You know who else uh, talks about that is uh, his name Mark Frost of Twin Peaks. That mm-hmm. he, in in the Twin Peaks dossier, they say that he's a a nexus point between major conspiracies. But the cigarette smoking man, he's got a bunch of. Li- I've watched presidents die. Um, I mean, maybe you can draw more parallels. No, you're right. I mean, I think obviously, well, he's there, Ground Zero and Roswell. You can look at Maury Island as the original thing, I suppose. Certainly his involvement with the Darrow in the caves, the JFK thing, just the general idea that there's some, because it's so rare in conspiracy law to have somebody involved in various strange mysteries. Do you know what I mean? Like to trace an individual who was involved in all three, it's it's the weirdest thing. That's why I'm looking so forward to your documentary. It's so, it's so ripe for, for this type of exploration. Oh, we've lost, I'm so excited we've lost to Brian get, briefly. I know. I'm so Sorry. excited to get more. I want to make you hear that. <laughs> I was so excited. to. Um, Ken Thomas, if you're listening, call me. Your website went down. I don't know how to get a hold oh, of you. No. I Facebooked you. Call me. Yeah, Ken Thomas's books are amazing. I, they were when I was doing my dissertation, my go-to for a lot of the the history in this. Well, one other Ken Thomas story, which I don't think is in the original Coming of the Sources, which is what launched this. Well, and in fact, I think it was first talked about the Maury Island incident and Chris Dahl in the first issue of Fate magazine. There you go. That's the that's the Ken Thomas book. But I think that's the book that talks about Harold Dahl's son, who both saw the the UFO explosion being kind of like kidnapped and disappeared and then found suffering from amnesia in a diner or working in a diner, a hundred waiting tables in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. hundreds of miles away. It was like, this is the beginning of so much of the high strangeness, which is part of UFO belief or became part of UFO belief. So you know what we need to, Oh, can I talk about the book? Real of quick? course. Yeah. We, I need to use the audience as, uh, as, uh, a resource here that in appendix four of the book, it talks about an interview with Fred Chrisman. Now, uh, Dean, tell me if I'm getting this wrong. The actual voice of Fred Chrisman appears only once in the files released under the FOIA for this book. The following interview is conducted by Mel Gomer of Tacoma's KTAC news. Robert Griffin, Chrisman's attorney is the other respondent. The interview took place November 1st, 1968. So, does that mean, is he being literal? Did Chrisman's voice appear in this? Because I've looked up FOIA documents, Freedom of Information Act documents. I've found only one place in history where Chrisman's voice was, and they wanted a lot of money for me to get a copy of it, and it's in the JFK archives huh. in New Orleans. And How much were they asking out of curiosity for that? Oh, it's like a hundred something just to get someone to come in and like, get it and there was like a hundred something to get it recorded and these, not, these are things i too I, bad you gotta want it and uh it's one of those things i i maybe i should spend the money now now that i'm in front of people they're gonna want me to spend it so i think i talked myself into it mm-hmm. so while i'm on that i uh the other thing about chrisman's voice and i think we talked about this before and i can send you the file but it might be not the right time, but it would be cool to have. Um, I looked up Radio KAYE, which is a station in Puyallup that got passed around from Christian Network to Right Wing Network to, I think now it's, uh, I think it's all like a Korean station. 
but it's in Puyallup. It's it's kind of by Lakewood where my friends all live. It's by Joint Base Lewis McCord where the B twenty five took off. And God, I bumped into Tacoma. It's so cool. Just all that stuff I recognize, including the library. It's so cool that I was walking in the same place Crispin was. This this legend was being formed. Anyway, the the radio station, I looked it up and someone wrote, Does anyone recognize this song? And I realized that Crispin has family who have tapes. And after I bothered them long enough, they uh they they were they've been so nice to me. They don't have to deal with this. They don't deal with people who ask where he was at the grassy knoll. You know what I mean? And um it's not often that they deal with someone the likes of me. And they gave me digital copies of uh, all the bins of tapes they had from the radio station. Wow. And there's not a lot. Wow. But there's some good stuff in there. And um, to hear what he finally sounds like, I got chills. He sounds exactly like Art Bell. Get out. That's cool. really, he sounds like tired Art Bell, and I love it. Gosh, I love Art Bell. I thought you were going to say, you know, he sounds like Pat Cashman. I was going to be get that out. That would have been so awesome. <laughs> Pat Cashman's perfect to play him, though. It's still exactly how he, how he heard himself. It's so great. Oh, I, I look forward to hearing those tapes. It is sad that so much of this stuff, I'm glad you found that. Like when I had Chanel Shans on the show, as I know you listened to it for the, um, the 76th anniversary of Kenneth Arnold's sighting. Chanel is the granddaughter of Kenneth Arnold and has republished the coming of the sources recently. It's a book you, anybody interested in UFOs who they haven't read should read. This is ground zero of all of this stuff. But she said that her family used to have the records that Ken Arnold and Ray Palmer sent back and forth. So presumably they probably had Palmer's versions because I'm guessing mm -hmm. Ken would have sent his to Palmer. So they would have had everything Palmer ever said on record because people supposedly used to record records and send them to each other. What a great idea. That, Can that you was imagine? long distance. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the fact that they've been lost, that there were recordings of Ray Palmer talking to Ken Arnold presumably often about flying saucers, probably about personal things, probably about all kinds of things. I know that that Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver both bought shares in a uranium company that Kenneth Arnold was involved with, for example. So they were business compatriots. They were buddies. Ken Arnold flew to Amherst a number of times, landed his plane in Farmer Field, and the farmer would drive him down and, you know, and, and visit visit both both Palmer and Shaver. But th those recordings have been lost to history particularly for people like me who think Ray Palmer is such a significant, and you who think Ray Palmer and Shaver and Arnold and Chrisman and all these people are so incredibly important historically to the type of things we're interested in today, that they've been lost to history and we're never going to get them back. We're never going to have a recording and know what Palmer was saying to Arnold in those, those recordings. As a documentarian and a historian, it breaks my heart that that stuff's been lost. On the other hand, that's part of the chase, which I, I find I find something really appealing about that, that I'm, I'm one of the few people who's ever gotten to hear Fred Crispin's voice that are, you know, still alive. If anyone's ever talked to him, I mean, come reach out to me, by the way, uh, Brian Chickley, B-R-Y-A-N-S-H-I-C-K-L-E-Y at Twitter. Um, uh, and, uh, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me anywhere. I'm, I'm easy to catch, but this, this part of the mythos, like, um, Jeff Suwak, who I who interviewed me, um, I was going to interview him before he he moved from Tacoma, but 
And he didn't tell me, by the way. That was some. That was some. Maury Island Men in Black stuff right there. I think he disappeared. Um. Yeah, Pat Cashman's from here in Seattle. Anyway, so the book, The Murder of a City, it says there's a little card in there. It says there are only three known copies of this book. And there's something really mentally stimulating. And there's three copies of this book, and you're one of the few to ever get it. Now, my best friend Paul got one. He won't let me open it because he knows I'm going to warp the pages. So I know there's four. And then in the library, there's five. And then I learned there's one at UW, so there's six. They're out there. And that's that's a beautiful thing. I check I have Google alerts for that book because I would kill for a copy. I would not literally kill for a copy. I'd kill a Darrow for a copy. But anyway, I was telling Fred Jr. about this and he said he was looking at the book. And I think I have this on camera. He goes, We had a garage full of these. Cause of course he printed them. By the way, Transistor Publishing, uh, it says Twin Press on there, I believe, is the... I could I could look. Let me see. You say something smart, and I'll come back sure, and say something I'll smart to, in a second. I'll try to be clever. So obviously, for those of you who haven't been listening from the beginning, hopefully most of you have, we're talking about Fred Chrisman, who was and is one of the most mysterious figures in the history of conspiracy and ufology because he was involved both in being a witness to the Maury Island incident and recovering the debris and giving it literally to the Air Force pilots who took off and died shortly thereafter. Then he was, previously to that, he was he wrote letters to Amazing Stories saying he'd fought the Darrow in the caves and for Raymond Palmer and Richard Shaver to drop the story because it was so dangerous. And later in his life, he was accused of being one of the three tramps at Dealey Plaza and potentially one of the shooters of JFK. So, Brian, let us, let us know what you've discovered there. Right here. Oh, it looks so cool when I was looking at it here. Hang on. For the sake of... You might, yeah, you might have to read it for us. I know. I just want, I want to make sure I get the exposure right. Published by Transistor Publishing Company, Twin Gates, Washington. So Twin Gates was the name of the, uh, I think it was a lumber mill that closed down. Harold Dahl bought it and turned it into his uh, antique store in Tenino. And um, credit goes to Adam Go Rightly for that, who is the best Chrisman researcher. He's taught me so much, and uh, I don't know if he's announced his book, but I'll I'll be the first. There 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 may or may not be a an Adam Go Rightly Chrisman book, and he's picking up stuff that I can't find out of physical documents. One such thing being that Chrisman worked as a projectionist for a while, uh, much like uh, Brad Pitt did in Fight Club. But he pointed that out to me, the, the, the Twin Gates thing. And uh, I said, did you know Twin Gates is the name of the, <laughs> the lumber mill they bought out? And he laughed and Fred Jr. goes, my dad's still messing with me and he's been dead for I don't know how long. And there was something sweet about that. Huh. Go rightly, certainly the right pe- person to do a book on Christmas. He did the... He did, he's done, of course, several books, including that. What's the is it is it Kook Spooks and Sources, which is one of the most fantastic right. books on the whole. That and yeah, A's for Damsky he did with Greg Bishop, and Greg Bishop, of course, did another. Which in fact, Kook Spooks and Sources goes very well with Greg Bishop's um, 
which we talk about on this show and we talk about on Talking on Mysterious Library all the time, Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta, which is about the Paul Benowitz affair, which we talked to, we've talked about to death, so we won't do it right now. But he also wrote a book, of course, on James Shelby Downard, which I haven't read yet, but I have over on my on my um, shelf there. And he's very much a Chrisman kind of character in some ways as well. Like Downard's fighting the Masons that are always after him. And he's always got a 45 in his belt. And he's one of those characters that some people thought actually might just have been a literary invention and mightn't have actually been real because like Chrisman, his stories seem so crazy and exaggerated, but no. So I think, yeah, I can't wait to read Gary Riley's book on Chrisman. Um, just like I can't I wait for your documentary on Chrisman. I can't wait for it either. I'm still finding stuff. Uh, that's a new kind of art, by the way, is the documentary to me. It's uh, because when you write a Christmas story, you can kind of add and subtract scenes. But a documentary is fluid. Um, I don't know how they used to do it before all this digital stuff. But um, the one my friend recorded a sample of his voice reading Christmas stuff. And um, he's a big proponent of using AI for when he's sick, you know, you can, you can replicate your voice. He's one of the few people that sounds just like him and huh. he, he's going to dub himself in when it's all done, but I'm using that as the string that's holding the bullet points together. So oh, wow. every time I find a piece of information and you're going to cover a lot of them, actually, you're my, one of my big interviews. Oh, thank you. Every, yeah. Yeah. Every time that happens, I cut a piece of his voice out. And so you're slowly just cutting his voice out till there's next to nothing. Cause you don't want any voiceover to do glue. You know, you watch those ancient alien shows. It's all voiceover speculating. Could this mean that aliens invented da 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 da? And you don't want the speculation. You want to hear someone claim it who has a PhD and well, thank some you. experience. Did, did you ever, it makes me think I'm the glue man. I'm half joking. Did you ever see the found footage guys film where they did the glue man joke? Like the guy who holds everything together in a documentary. No, that's fine. I think we played it at Midwest weird fest in like year one or year two because the, the found footage guys who were from, they went to college in Eau Claire, Nick Pruer and who's the other guy? I should know their names. Um, they, they, they created one of our shorts programs for us. And one of the, films they put in there was their glue man little mini doco like mo mockumentary really but it's so funny but yeah no I, I get the glue man thing well we listen we've been going for a while this is one of the longest talking weeds i've ever done which is fantastic but you should probably let people know how they can get a hold of you there's obviously fredchrisman.com right but what else should they be looking at uh brian shickley on twitter it's on youtube it's on facebook b-r-y-a-n because i'm special s-h-i c-k-l-e-y no c in there at the beginning s-h-i-c-k-l-e-y and uh the other thing i didn't announce murder of a city is now on uh, uh archive.org there is both the wow. copy with my chewed up fingernail in there and there's also a completely brand new transcription of it that's a one-to-one -one including the formatting and the page lengths did you make one of those is that one of yours or yeah, it's entirely, in fact, all of Chrisman's art I traced over and re-inked. So all the little drawings he did are completely redone from scratch. And at some point, I think the family wants to do uh, a minor reissue of them. But it's certainly no coming of the saucers. Yeah, you guys, you and the family should get a copy up on Amazon or something where people can order a physically, you know, a printable one as well as one for Kindle. I think so. He's about to write a forward for it too. 
Oh, wow. Well, man, what a joy talking to you for three nights in a row. Our audience tonight only got to hear the final night of the three, but hopefully they'll be able to catch your – did we have a title for your Christmas documentary yet? No. Um, I would love to talk more about documentary names. I'll see. I'm, I'm sometimes good with titles. So sometimes I just steal them from John Keel. It's the case in The Man Who Invented Flying Saucers because that's Keel's term for my Palmer documentary. Love but it. yeah. We need something just as catchy for Christmas. I bet you can come up with something. The titles for your animations are fantastic. The Christmas Enigma. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Fred Christman, man of intergalactic mystery. That's pretty good. That's better than mine. <laughs> well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us, man. You and I are obviously going to continue talking off screen. We'll have you back when, whenever the next thing drops from you, because it's always such a great joy to talk to you. Oh, thank you, man. And until I chat to you next, Brian, and everybody else out there, thank you so much for listening, everybody in the chat, everybody watching either live or after the show goes out on the podcast audio platforms of Untold Radio Network. And until we chat again, keep it weird.